Hi, welcome to episode number 18 of the Artist of Motion podcast. Today my guest is Sensei Sean Steiner, my buddy out of Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, we've been friends for several years now, known each other through the interwebs for quite some time before that. He's been in martial arts since the early 1990s after serving a hitch in the U.S. Air Force. So looking forward to hearing from him. He's got a lot of great information and look forward towards the end for some info and uh, on Budo Camp, which is a great set of seminars he puts on yearly. All right, let's get to the show. All right, welcome to this episode of the Artist of Motion podcast. Today, my guest is Sensei Sean Steiner out of Omaha, Nebraska. He's the owner and operator of Steiner's Academy of Martial Arts and Steiner's Academy of Firearms Training. He began training in martial arts in the early 1990s. He currently holds Don ranking in a couple of different lineages of martial arts, as well as an instructorship in Kyushu Jitsu. He is a veteran of the United States Air Force, and we thank him greatly for his service. He's on the other end of the phone today, so how are you, Mr. Steiner? Long time no talkie. Quite well. Good to hear from you, and I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. You know, every time we uh, see each other, it's one of those where we sit down and it's just, it's like we talked five minutes ago. So, uh, for those of us playing the home game and unfamiliar maybe with your exact history, that was kind of the Cliff Notes version. So, I'll turn it over to you here. And why don't you uh, give us your real history in non Cliff Notes version? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, I got to Omaha in the early 90s. It was 94. And, um, <clears throat> There were some guys at the base who came back in karate geese, and uh, I t- asked them, I said, what, what is it you guys are doing? And they're like, oh, I do tempo. And I'm like, tempo? You mean like that dude in the perfect weapon? And they were like, yeah, that guy, Jeff Steedman, it's tempo like that. And I'm like, you will take me there. So I got on down there. I got started. That was technically a version of Shaolin tempo that I got started in, and I stayed there for a number of years. Actually became an instructor, um, ended up opening a school. Um, that, my instructor there gave me the opportunity to open a school, and I was like 23 years old, and I owned like a 1983 Mustang, so I decided, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> so I started training, got a, got, a, got a location, started getting people, worked full-time, kept working full-time probably the next five to ten years and uh, just built the school up from then continued training um i also had the opportunity to train and was part of lou angel's organization back then um i received a certification from him in tenshi goji kai in a need on in 2006 and he recognized my rank under my previous instructor in 2005 and i sat there at that rank for quite a while with no real interest in getting promoted because I didn't really have a need. And then eventually, um, all along the way, I was working with some Kyushu Jitsu guys. My instructor there was Jim Korn out of Indiana. He's a great guy, very knowledgeable on the subject in Okinawan karate. So I did a lot of training with him. Eventually, that culminated in a uh, fifth-degree black belt from him in Kyushu Jitsu. And I had miscellaneous ranks on the way to that. And then I got hooked up with Dr. Chappelle, which was probably one of the biggest um, incidents in my career. Uh, I had a student, David Carnley, who was uh, on the Internet, nonetheless, and was talking to a guy named Dave Crouch and talking to a guy named Ron Chappelle, and he's telling me about all the stuff they're saying and all this other stuff, and he's telling me these grand stories. And I looked at him and I said, look, these guys you're talking about, the stories you're telling me, these guys are either really knowledgeable and we need to get with them 
or they are completely full of crap. At this point, I can't tell the difference. Fair enough. So eventually we had Doc to come out, and he did a seminar for us, and I believe that first seminar, I don't remember when that was. It was early 2000s. And uh, he came out and trained, and he was staying at my house, and he said to me, he goes, you know, one day you're going to be my student. And at this point, I was already kicking around ideas of leaving my organization that I was in for different reasons. And I kind of looked at him and I said, I won't be looking for another organization for quite a while because martial arts politics are nonsensical at best. So a few years went by. I ended up going, actually, I think Mr. Carnley actually went out to Doc's instructor camp the first time. And uh, I kind of used him as a intel guy. He went and checked it out on his own, came back, told me all the stuff, showed me some of the stuff. Of course, some of it you can't understand until you see it. So the next year I went there, and I've been there every year since. I think he might have went to the first one, and I was at every one after that. I'm not sure that's true. But that's kind of the idea. And right now I fitted a six-degree black belt, which was recognized by Doc and Steiner Schwangfa. And um, I just got promoted by Doc Chappelle this year to a uh, shonan in American Tactical Kempo, his system of martial arts. So I'm pretty proud of that. So that kind of gives you an idea on the martial arts side where I've been. Somewhere in the middle of that, I started doing firearms training. Um, I actually started with Jim Corn. He was a firearm, firearms aficionado, and he had a, uh, a handgun class. So we rolled out there, did handguns and martial arts together. Um, from there, I also got hooked up with uh, Fred Masterson, who was a guy that we used to train with a lot out of Arizona, He's an Aikido guy, and we had Budo camps every year where we'd have uh, martial artists of different styles come and teach. So we'd have an Aikido guy, a Sistema guy, a Kung Fu guy, a Kempo guy, you know, a karate guy, a Jiu-Jitsu guy, whatever we happen to get on any given year. And uh, Fred hooked me up with a trip to Front Sight. So I went out there, started watching how they taught, really got uh, enamored with the organization of how they delivered material and decided, you know, I went to a gun class with some other people and it wasn't very good and I could do this better than a lot of people do it. So I think I'm going to open up a firearms instruction course. And this was about the time that Nebraska had got um, concealed carry. So I went ahead and took that up by the horns and got certified. I was one of the first people on the list once upon a time. Um, I was third on the list of instructors in Nebraska, but then that lapsed due to an oversight, so I'm not on the top of that list anymore. And since then, I've been teaching martial arts and firearms, um, teach everything from handguns to rifles and shotguns and self-defense techniques and, you know, um, defensive tactics as far as hanging on to a gun or how to get to the gun. And I also run that out of now in conjunction with Inner 10 Weapons and Training, I'm 90th in the military with Jacques Claire. He asked me at an instructor's class, he said, if I open it into a range, would you want to teach at it? And I kind of looked at him and smiled and said, yeah, kid. <laughs> Are you serious? Like, if, I, if I do this, will you come teach? Really? Yeah, that's what he said. I mean, we were in an NRA instructor's course, and I was up there. You know, I've been teaching for a while, so this stuff wasn't new to me. You know, a lot of those people were brand new. This was their first bite at instructing, so I'm sure... I looked fairly proficient. And he said, I'm thinking about opening an indoor range. And I'm like, well, that's going to cost you about a million bucks to get started. I'm thinking to myself, I said, look, man, you get that thing rolling. I would be happy to work with you. 
And then a couple years later, he's like, okay, I'm all set, man. Let's go. Wow. So I've been lucky enough to be a part of his organization. What a what a great opportunity. Oh, yeah, it was nuts. It was crazy. I mean, you know, he sat it, and I was like, sure, uh-huh. I'm yeah. all over that, dude. <laughs> when, you just whatever. let me know when you, when you get it squared away. That's awesome. And he did it. He's a very, he, he's a very accomplished guy, and um, he's got a very nice range in Omaha, and I'm lucky enough to be part of it and help teach there and educate people and, you know, Ain't nothing wrong with getting paid to shoot a gun. Right? Now all of a sudden I think I might have to come visit Omaha. Oh, dude, you love the range. I mean, I haven't been to all the ranges in L.A., but the one I was in in uh, Torrance, sheesh. All right, so let's uh, let's bump back here. Uh, you were talking about Budo Camp. So tell us some more about Budo Camp because I've seen that website has grown every year. Yeah, Budo Camp started as an idea of a friend of mine, um, Gary Boaz, Sensei Gary Boaz out of Kansas. And... I don't actually, oh, I do remember how I met him. I went to Kansas. One of my students back in the day had brought in a video of, uh, I don't know if it was George Gilman or, or Evan Pintazzi, somebody doing pressure point stuff. And, you know, videos of Q show are pretty hard to interpret because you look at it and it looks like some Darth Vader stuff or, you know, it looks like the guy's faking it all or all this other stuff. And the guy brought me the video and I looked at it and I said, well... This guy right here, I think, is faking it. That guy right here is faking it. But that dude right there just got knocked the hell out. So let me call this guy see what's happening at the seminar. And that was first time I had Corn and Pintazzi and Gary Boaz at his school in Kansas. So I went down there and, you know, I wasn't necessarily a non-believer, but I wasn't a believer. I'm like, I got to go check this out and see what I can find out. So I went down there and they worked a bunch of arm points and some head points. And then at the end, they knocked a couple people out. And, uh, you know, I stood around my arms crossed most of the seminars. So corn, I think, thought that uh, I was one of those guys who was like, ah, this is all BS. So he ended up knocking Boaz out and having me catch for him. And he knocked the guy out. And I caught him. And then I gave him a good shake just to kind of test him out. And he was dead in the world. So I started working with those guys, and then Boaz and I had talked for a while, and he said, I, I want to start this camp where everybody gets together and teaches different stuff. I said, dude, that sounds awesome. So he set it up, and we did it in Kansas for probably five years, and then um, he couldn't run it anymore for uh, whatever reason, and he handed it off to me, and I've been running it ever since, and we've been lucky enough to get guys like um, Seafood Pete Star. Uh, Sensei John Kirker from Ishinaru, guys like uh, Asa Seeley out of <laughs> Boston, and Nico Huffman, the Sistema guy out of Arizona, and Jason Graham, that huge guy, and Fred Matheson. And, um, we've had a lot of good people come through that organization. You know, it's one of those things that you think would be really huge, but it's hard to get people to be comfortable going somewhere where they don't know what they're going to be doing, especially in the martial arts. Because I think a lot of people are very insecure in what they do. Not all of them, but a lot of them. Or they're too, they're too secure in what they do, and they're not open-minded enough to be able to go to something like that and go, hey, that's not how we do it, but let me, let me evaluate what you're doing, and maybe I can learn something from you. And one of the things I always tell students is it's, it's always good to go to a seminar because even if it's all bad, you can learn what not to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was so that's something we do every year in September. 
Go ahead, sorry. I was just saying, I was looking over the uh, the history of past instructors that have been on that thing, and you get some really big names that have been in and out of there. So that that's uh, I'm glad to see that that sucker is still rolling and getting bigger every year. Yeah, you should come. Yeah, I've got a lot of seminars that I need to attend at, uh, when I, I've got the availability in my schedule to do so. That's on my list. Yeah, so that's one of the things I'm actually proud of. I'm pretty proud of being a part of. Um, we get a lot of different guys coming in, you know, and we're – I don't mean to say that we're selective, but we don't let people instruct at that thing unless they've kind of been proofed by one of the instructors. Because every once in a while we'll get some guy calls up and he's like, I'm a 10th degree black belt and blah, 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 and I want to teach at your seminar. I'm like, you do? Like, I don't know who you are. Let me check your background. Let me see if anybody can vouch for you. Because the last thing we want is a bunch of students getting in there with, you know, a bad example of martial arts. Um, and it's not necessarily the technique that we're worried about. It's the personality. You know, if you get some prima donna in there that's just trying to talk up his own stuff and tell everybody why he's better than everybody else, that doesn't jive with our, with our mojo. Um, those people don't last long, and they don't have a very good time anyway because everybody just kind of gets tired of their BS pretty quickly. That makes perfect sense. So uh, I know how much the role of a sensei means to you just, you know, based on research we've done and some chats we've had down in various places. Uh, usually in LA, uh, but when somebody's starting out in martial arts, how do you uh, help them to see what it is they're actually looking for, and how do you help them find what that goal happens to be? Well, you know that's a tough, tough assignment because in reality, most people have no idea what they want or what they need. Um, what they know is that there's a hole that they're trying to fill with some physical ability. So they either want to feel good about themselves emotionally or psychologically, or they want to, you know, get fitness, or, you know, maybe they watch a lot of martial arts movies and they just find that the, the ability to do certain things is so amazing and it's mystical that they want to be a part of that. Um, what I find is usually little kids want to do it because of cartoons and adults want to do it because they feel like, you know, let's say everybody knows if you're old enough that once you get to be about, 30 years old and you've settled into a job, you really start evaluating what you've accomplished. So if you're not one of those guys who was the quarter of the football team, quarterback of the football team, and you've already got your glory days filed away that you can, you know, wear your jersey and, you know, kind of like old, uh, the old guy from uh, Married with Children. You know, you kind of live on those glory days. Polk High. A lot of people decide, hey, yeah, Polk High, exactly. Um, <laughs> A lot of people are just looking for something to feel a little better about themselves. They want, they want to do some work outside of the work they get paid for, and they want to have something to identify with. Um, this is one of the things you see nowadays in, um, in the tribal or cult-like essence of some of these cycling clubs and cross and that kind of stuff. Most of those people's success is based a lot more off of the tribal um, entity than it is about the material. And, you know, I, I, I walk a fine line there because I want stuff to be useful and I don't want people buying stuff to make themselves feel good. I don't want them learning stuff only to make themselves feel good. I want to make them capable. And my theory is, is if you're giving somebody stuff, especially in instruction and you're not actually making them proficient or better, then you're not doing anybody a service. You're doing them a disservice. 
You know, you see some of these schools, martial arts schools specifically, where they're not allowed to touch each other. You know, they're like, we do sparring, but we don't touch each other. I'm like, okay, what's the point? And they're like, well, I don't know. You know, we, we spar, but we don't touch each other. But I want to learn how to defend myself. I'm like, well, if you have to defend yourself, I promise you the guy that you're defending yourself against is going to touch you. And if you've never been touched in a dojo, I don't know how you think you're going to pull a rabbit out of your hat and somehow learn to fight after you get punched in the face. Yeah, the greatest laid plans in your martial strategy go out the window the first time somebody punches you in the face. Yeah, well, you know, it's that one they always pass around the Internet. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. They mm-hmm. credit that to Mike Tyson. Yeah, he's somebody I would not want to get punched in the mouth by, even even at this stage of his life. No, I actually saw a video of him, I think this last fall, and I don't know if it was real or not. Well, it was real. It was him punching the bag. And you wouldn't want him hitting you. I mean, he's moving a you know a swinging heavy bag, and he's bending it in half. I mean, it looked, he'd hit it with a with that shovel hook, and it looked like the old video of Bruce Lee kicking one of those heavy bags he had, you know, stuffed with rags, and bending it in half with a uh, hopping sidekick. Mm-hmm. And Tyson's folding that thing in a half with a hook punch. That's something you don't want to line up for. Yeah, I'll line up for that about a hundred yards away. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I'm confident at that range. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah, Mike, you stay over there. I'm gonna. Be, I'm, I'll be way over here, out of range, well out of range, well out of range. So where where do you guys run that boodle camp out of? Well, for a long time we did it outdoors. It was part of the uh, part of the model is we'd find a camp type place like a uh, like a church camp or something. Um, in the early days, it was pretty easy because everybody was under the age of 35. Um, when we started bringing in people like Chappelle and Pete Starr, and um, I had an instructor from Shinkendo, Eric McKillican, that showed up, and we got to the point where the lodging and the cost of lodging and the commitment, time commitment of lodging um, seemed to be hurting the, uh, the attendance. So what we've been doing as of late is we've been holding the instruction part at my dojo. Um, we can hold about 50 people in here. We usually get about 20 to 30 people to come to that thing. Um, and we're always looking to get more like-minded people to come. Cause it's, it's, a, it's about sharing ideas and opening up doors. So, you know, maybe you have a technique that you think you understand pretty well, but you see another guy do the technique in a different way, or better yet, even explain it in a different way, and the depth of your knowledge gets better, and the depth of everybody else's knowledge gets better. And that's the idea. Um, You know, you see some of these folks, they have what they think is the best style, usually because their instructor told them it was the best style. Um, And they're blinded. You know, it's kind of like China in the old days, when they didn't do any trade and they didn't talk to anybody and they were, you know, a hundred years behind in technology because they blockade and wouldn't allow anybody in for fear of poisoning the well. But if you bring in other ideas, you know, if you bring in ideas from different countries or different styles and you find a decent source to get it from, there's a lot to learn. I mean, one of the things that I found working with Dr. Chappelle is a lot of the stuff that he teaches that he's taught me, um, initially it seems very 
you know, American Chuang Fa specific or American Tactical Tempo specific. But when I start watching it and then I go to a Tai Chi class, I'm like, oh, that's that thing. Bingo. Or I look at some issue. What's that? Bingo. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and you look at like some old Kung Fu and all of a sudden you're like, oh, oh, oh. Oh, so that thing that I did as a white belt in Chappelle's system, which looked like, you know, angry robot tempo, like we like to talk about it at the beginning. And then when you get up to, the, you know, the black belt series material, the brown belt series material, and you start to see a flow, and you're like, oh, my gosh, okay. So this guy has basically been down the road. He's hunted down the Chinese martial arts. He's been down the road of Japanese martial arts. And he's distilled this stuff up into a delivery system with an educational paradigm that anybody can understand. And he's already set it up that if you follow it the way he set it up, anybody can do it. And the, the difference there is, is in a lot of arts, if you're not naturally gifted to some degree, if you're not a real good problem solver or mechanics understanding ability, or a physical, you have a physical ability that other people don't have, those people that maybe aren't the quickest on the uptake of remembering a form, or maybe aren't the most coordinated, they're going to have difficulty progressing through and becoming as good as somebody that's you know, naturally gifted at some of those other aspects. Whereas when you go through Chappelle's system, Chappelle's system is already allocated for that, and he does stuff by the numbers, and with structure and form, that if you do it, it doesn't matter if you're sharp or coordinated. If you do it enough, we will reprogram a person so that you can be as good at it as just about anybody else. You know, that's not going to negate some of those, those wondrous specimens that are just gifted and everything, and they're always going to be a little bit faster, a little bit better, a little bit quicker than everybody else. But you're going to be able to set a bar and when somebody gets, say, a black belt in that material, they're all going to meet the lowest. <clears throat> they're all going to meet and exceed the requirements. Yeah, it raises the lowest level of expectation way higher. Yeah, it raises it way higher because you see these other people and they're like, well, you know, we had to give him a black belt because depending on the school, you know, he's been here two years, he's been here four years, he's been here six years. And, yeah, he can't do it very well. But that's because of X, Y, Z. And to be honest, I don't buy it. I mean, there is some of that. You know, if you've got a guy who's got a bad hip and, you know, he can't kick to the throat, that's, that's a viable thing. But these things that instructors pass off as student limitations, and that's why they gave them a belt when they can't do the minimum requirements, I find that lazy and disrespectful. Fair enough. So was it the seminars that you went to that basically gave you that idea of branching out and looking at other material? Well, you know, with Budo Camp, that was probably, I mean, I was always that way. Um, even when I was doing tempo, you know, even as an orange belt and back in those days, when I had the opportunity, it probably didn't come until purple or blue when I actually felt, you know, like I wasn't a, you know, a drunken monkey walking around the floor. When somebody had a seminar, if I could get to it and it was something that seemed interesting, I would go to learn. Um, so that started pretty early. And then, you know, with Boaz and Corn and those guys, when we got the Budo Camp thing going up, that really planted the seed and secured it. 
because I found people that were not all about talking about why your style sucks or your instructor sucks or why mine's better than yours. And I realized that, yeah, you see a lot of that on the internet. You see a lot of that in some of these, these get togethers, but kind of like politics, you know, you only hear from the far left and the far right. They scream the loudest, but in reality, most of the people are somewhere in between and probably could come to some common ground if they actually talk to each other. And I believe martial arts is the same and people should you know, take their belt off and have a cup of coffee or better yet a glass of whiskey and discuss real martial arts stuff, you know, technique and principles and abilities and improving people. And everybody would be a lot happier. Um, you know, the thing I found in Chappelle well, you know, of course, the first seminar with Chappelle, you spend a lot of time going, what? I, why, what? That doesn't make any sense. Why would I go all the way down here and then all the way up here to get to a block on the other side of my box? And, you know, in a seminar situation, you don't get nearly enough explanation of what you're doing or why you're doing it. And since it's a seminar and it's the first time you've ever done it, you can't do it anyway. So you really just leave with more questions than answers. But, you know, the nice thing about Chappelle is he has proofs built into the system. You know, he says, if you do this, you will have more body structure. And then he goes, okay, this is how you're going to test it. Test it. And when you do things like that, it really gives people something to hang on to, something they go to work on Monday and go, look, man, this dude taught me this thing, and I can prove it. I can prove that it does what he says it does. That's a big deal. Because a lot of people's martial arts path is my instructor can do it, so that proves that it can be done. The problem there is it doesn't necessarily prove that you can do it. Because maybe your instructor is just way better at stuff than you are, not to mention all the training that he's put in. And you're not ever going to be able to make that work because he's never going to impart to you the instruction or the knowledge that you're going to need to actually make it work because the movement isn't necessarily going to get you there unless you understand how to do it and why you're doing it to some degree. So that's that same methodology of, you know, hey, this is designed to do X, so we need to test X against whatever that is and see if it actually works. So I, I know personally I've taken that right. same philosophy into everything else that I'm doing, and it kind of isolates for me, okay, Either this other piece of material that's designed to do this, I can't make it do that. So do I have a faulty understanding of the material, or is that material just less efficient at doing this particular task? Have you found the same kind of thing? Word. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's such a good tool because instead of, you know, you learn a technique and then you and one of your students try it out and you're like, okay, so all we know is we can't make it work. We don't know whether we're doing it wrong. We don't know whether we understand it wrong or we don't know that it's crap. And if you don't know that, then it's going to depend on what kind of person you are, what you do with it. Some people aren't very confident in um, their ability to discern one from the other, so they're just going to assume it's their fault. Other people are overly confident, and they're going to assume that it's definitely the technique's fault because their ego won't allow them to say, well, I, don't, I just can't figure it out. So they'll discard everything and say, well, that's all BS because I can't make it work. And then you've got the other people, which is the kind of people I find in Chappelle's organization who go, why doesn't this work? Or you say it works, show me. Show me so I can prove to myself that it actually works. And um, 
you know, I'm, you, you very rarely see that. I've always prided myself on an instructor that tried to do that. But even still, Chappelle is the guy who sets it up and he, he, he's already got it written down. This is how to do it. This is how it works. And, you know, not everything, because I always got to call him up and ask him questions, but, you know, life's a journey. Um, but, you know, a lot of places you go and you go, well, why does that do that? And the instructor will look at you and go, because I said so, just do it. And there's a place for that. I mean, sometimes you got a white belt and all he's doing is asking questions over and over again. And you're like, it's not going to even matter if I answer your question. You don't understand how to move your hand. So how about if you just go back to learning how to move your hand and we'll talk about why's later. That is such a key piece of right. information I mean, for people, especially when they're starting out training is unless you have, you know, if you've got a medical background where you understand anatomy on that level, then we can have a little bit more discussion on it. But until you have some base point of reference where you actually understand, you know, articulation and how muscle recruitment works and all that kind of stuff, it's really difficult to get into the whys and the how comes until you have something based to work off of. Great point. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things I tell people, you know, especially when you're, you're hitting nerve cavities or, you know, pressure points and that kind of stuff, you know, that's not the mainstay of what I do, but I think it's important knowledge for a real martial artist to have. And, you know, you take a guy and you put him out of structure and you clip him on the, the point of his skin or something with your knuckle, and he stumbles from a light touch, and he's like, I want to know why that works. Generally what I say is, I usually say something along these lines. Well, do you want the Chinese medicine version? Do you want the Chinese martial version? Do you want the Western version? Do you want the, the structural version? And I'm like, you know, to be perfectly honest, I can't give you one answer of why it works, but I can do it to you again and prove you that it, what does work. I'm like, sometimes you've got to start with, does it work? then you can go figure out why it works. And eventually, you know, if you've been doing this as long as I have, you get to the point where you're like, some things I just don't care why they work. As long as you can do it repeatedly. Because I've done yeah. it so many times. It's, it's, it's repeatable. It's obviously proven. I don't have a research team or a grant to go in there and go, well, when I put this body in this <laughs> position and I open up this nerve cavity, what electrical signal does this into which part of the innervation of the spine to activate an effect on the liver. Okay, cool. But in reality, I can still just block your hand and punch you there and you fall down into the funky chicken. So, you know, somebody should do that work, but I'm not that guy. Yeah, and that's that's a whole different ball game. There's a there's a couple of videos out there and I'm not going to say the person's name because I don't feel like getting sued. Uh, but there, there's another couple of videos out there from somebody who's teaching, you know, pressure point activations and this dude takes, you know, some volunteers to, you know, demonstrate whether this stuff works or not. And he, you know, he'll bend their, their butt backwards and he'll bend their chin forwards and then, you know, turn their chin at this angle. And then he just waffles the guy. See, it works. I can knock the guy out. I mean, I, you put this guy in the worst possible position, the least defensible position and then he's supposed to stand there and let you just deliver a Mike Tyson haymaker to him while he's that. I mean, really? It takes you that much to knock right. somebody out? Are you kidding me? And I, I, you know, the thing about that is, is if I, if I, I'm not going to gather a guess at which one you're talking about. Now but the reality of it is, is some of those people are there 
because they want to be the, the, the front of the show, right? They want the attraction. So in order to make sure that they don't make a fool of themselves by doing it efficiently and, you know, showing a, a, a useful application, they cheat everything. You know, it's like the guy that, uh, the guy, I saw a video once of a guy in Hawaii and he was on local TV and he was going to break a, he was going to break a brick with a glass, right? He put the glass in his fingers and he was going to, he was going to tap this brick with this glass and he's going to send his cheat through it and break it. Well, the guy that's doing the interview, you know, it's like the local morning guy. He goes over, he's like, look, folks, this is real life bricks. And he fucking, uh, excuse me, he touches the brick and it breaks in half. Oh, I saw was, that you one. Know, this was the journalist. That was hilarious. Yeah. The look on the journalist's I mean, face is obviously, you know, yeah, it was a setup. You know, not that that guy, maybe that guy can do that. I don't know. But what I do know is in order to make sure he didn't look the fool, he baked that brick or pre-cut that brick or he did something so that it was a guaranteed win. And you see a lot of those guys in martial arts and, you know, especially the Kyushu Jitsu area where they're setting stuff up and it's guaranteed to work. Well, yeah, if you get a guy bent over, like you said, with his chin hanging out and you turn his head to the side and then you smoke him across the jaw, well, I can set that up and have a five-year-old do that and put a guy down. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, the thing about that is is the people, they look at that and they go, well, see, that proves that it's all garbage. And I'm like, well, hang on there, Sparky. If that dummy who's only there for attention can make it happen, you sure there isn't any value to that material just because that guy's kind of a douche? You might want to look at it a little deeper than that. Yeah, the principle is is you know find find the guy find the guy or find the the knowledge that actually lets you understand why it works, and then is there a way to make that work without having to set somebody up and you know clobber them? Right, right, and you know, and I guess the other way you could look at that is is if you could kick a guy in the hip and get his hips back, and then block his arm with a parry or some kind of push down or whatever you want to use to get his chin forward and hit him as hard as you can. I guess it demonstrates that that would work. Yeah. The, uh, to, to me, the measure of, you know, somebody who is a quote master, and I know that term gets bandied around a lot and I don't want to debate the, the term about it, but you know, mastery of you know, a subject for me means somebody who can demonstrate to you that it works under multiple different conditions, but then doesn't have to hurt you or clobber you in the process to illustrate it either. I, I would agree with that. You know, the, the biggest problem in most things human is ego, right? Yep. These people, they, they, they're so concerned about what somebody thinks of them, they don't have enough confidence in the material or their ability to just demonstrate it and say, hey, this works. And if somebody stands there and goes, I don't think that works. I think it's nonsense. And if you can't go, cool, think what you want. I mean, I've had guys say that to me. They're like, I don't think that would work. I'm like, okay, don't do it then. And they just look at you like, hey, I, I just required you to do a research paper to prove it to me. And I'm like, oh, well, you've confused me with somebody that cares if you believe it or not. Love it. You go test it yourself. If you want to do it, then go do it. But if you don't think it works, it ain't going to work anyway. So, cool. It just triggered something. What do you think the most impressive thing you've actually personally seen, like, I don't care, seminar or a class or whatever, 
what are what are some of the highlight moments that you go, damn, that was really cool to see or feel? Well, you know, um, I guess to beat the beat the Chappelle drum a little bit, <laughs> you know, when I first started working with him, and you know, he's talking about an inward block, and he's talking about the angle and the positioning. And, you know, coming from Shaolin Kempo, a neutral bow wasn't a real strong stance in there, so that was fairly foreign to me. And the alignment and whatnot, he's like, if you do this, it cannot be bent. And I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. And then we tested it, and I'm like, okay, cool, that makes sense. You can't bend the arm. I'm like, that doesn't make it strong. You guys aren't even throwing the block very with speed or power. And when we first started working on it, I think the, one of the big things in the, in the American Chuang Fox out that really stuck in the beginning was when I did an inward block, block correctly for the first time. When I really laid one on a guy and, you know, I hit him so hard, or he hit me so hard, depending on how you want to look at the energy, that I, for a moment, I questioned whether or not I broke his arm. You know, he jerked it back so hard, it looked like somebody hit him with a baseball bat. And the, the, the essence, the feeling that I got when I hit him was that it gave. And I was like, wow, that is some real-life martial arts magic right there. You know, you hit somebody like that, and, and, I mean, the guy basically crumbled. His hip dropped, his right foot anchored to the floor, his butt hang, hung out, he brung, brung his arm in like he was saving it from something, like he touched a hot stove, and he looked at me like I had just shot his dog. And I was like, damn, did that hurt? And he's like, and he's like, don't ever hit me like that again. And I was like, okay, this guy has got some real bona fide stuff that I have to know in order to be able to pass to my, my students and my, my colleagues because it is real life bona fide stuff. You know, I've seen stuff in the Q show world. I mean, some of the stuff I've seen, I wouldn't even say out loud because nobody would believe it. But, you know, I've seen people with a touch get dropped and be completely knocked out. I've seen it multiple times, multiple people, multiple occasions, multiple countries. And, you know, the people that are like, well, Q show jutsu is garbage. That's not real. I'm like, okay, cool. Good luck with that. Because my experience is completely different from that, and I'm not a bandwagoner. Mm. I'm the kind of guy that's like, yeah, that's neat, but I'm not joining your crew until I feel I feel credibility there. Um, I've seen people, you know, dysfunction people with a touch. Um, some of that stuff's big deal, theoretical stuff. Um, you know, people question that stuff, and they go, well, you couldn't do that in a fight. I'm like, well, what if, it, what, what if the point of that exercise wasn't a fight? What if the point of that exercise was manipulating human energy for healing? What if it was just an exercise like a drill that you could train so that you could get a better feel over your body and be able to manipulate systems in your body that you can't manipulate now? Um, I also had the, I had the luxury a couple times to uh, train with uh, – Obata, the, uh, the grandmaster founder of Shinkendo, I did that for probably five years, maybe six years, when McKillican was still in Omaha. And to watch that guy run a sword was something else. It, it, it was amazing. 
Um, he was a little bitty Japanese guy, and he'd swing that sword. And it was like watching a samurai cartoon or something or an old samurai movie. He'd flip that wrist, and that stuff would just turn into three pieces. Amazing. Um, and, you know, on the firearm side, I've seen some pretty impressive guys do some pretty impressive things. Um, you, you watch a Jerry Mitchellick run a revolver, and oh, it doesn't look like it's humanly possible. <laughs> I you know, saw, that guy can... <laughs> I saw a graphic the other day about him. It said, you know, that everybody's trying to ban this and ban that, right? They're, they're, they're going after bump stocks, then they're going after ARs, and the next is going to be Jerry Mikulik's trigger finger. Right. Yeah, I mean, what did that guy do? Six shots, reload six shots in like two seconds out there of a something revolver, ridiculous. Then. And they were all hits? Yep. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was absurd. Most people can't reload a revolver in two seconds, let alone empty it, fill it, and empty it again. Um. I think the I think the real message there is you should not spend your life poo-pooing things you don't understand. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that somebody else isn't making it work. That doesn't mean you shouldn't use critical thinking to differentiate crap from something that possibly has real value. But if everything you see that is is beyond your understanding is BS from the jump, you're never going to get anywhere. You're just going to be a bitter old bastard that says everything else besides what you know is crap. And your life is going to be hard. So don't make your life hard. Yeah, we're supposed to work together. We're supposed to uh, share knowledge, and that way everybody grows, right? Right. I mean, if you were helping everybody grow, we'd have less people we had to complain about. This is true. And uh, probably a lot less of the people grandstanding on ego. Right. Yep, and they'll do it every time, and they'll take advantage of it every time. Yep. There we go with our nice, you know, perfect world scenario again. But, eh, whatever. We can create our own reality, right? Yeah, we're like a bunch of hippies sitting here talking. <laughs> we should all get along and go shoot guns and punch people. That's an interesting definition of getting along. <laughs> <laughs> every time, hey, Steve, every time I go somewhere with a group of people and we punch each other or we shoot guns, everybody has a good time. I don't know why everybody doesn't do it. Yeah, I don't know. It's you know, weird. I, I had a quote from a Budo camp one year that everybody seemed to like, and then we put it on a T-shirt the next year, and it said, some of my best friends are people that punch me in the face. Oh, I love it. My uh, One of my black belts brought in a uh, banner for the school, and it says, the beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> Big pirate flag. I love it. Nice. It's, it's here in my office at the school. So, <laughs> um, uh, you, you mentioned the Jerry Mikulik thing. Uh, last time I was out at Front Sight, I was uh, I was there going over to the pro shop because uh, I had to get a new uh, guide rod spring. But uh, we're passing one of the other ranges, and you know my instructor is with us, and he's carrying my gun just because that way it's you know it, it wasn't in condition to put in my holster, so I had him carry it. Uh, safety things, you know. Uh, but uh, right. we're going past one of the ranges, and all I heard was I look down at him. I'm like, okay, I don't see any rifles down there. You know, it's a hundred yard range. I don't see any rifles down there. What in the Sam heck was that? And we watch it again, and da -da 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 -da. it was a handgun master combat class, uh, like a practice test. And one of the qualifications, oh, yeah. dude, have you seen that thing? It is crazy. It's like you, you start, is, you start three, tough. yeah, you start three in your uh, in your holstered firearm. You start three in a in your uh, magazine or speed loader. You uh, strong hand draw from concealment, put three rounds on target, uh, e reload, put three rounds on target again with your support hand. In 1.3 seconds. And that is fast. 
That is ridiculously fast. That is fast. I mean, you know, a good standard for folks is being able to get out of a holster and make two shots on a target in a second and a half to give people a little bit of an idea of how fast that is compared to just a general acceptable ability. Yeah, I mean, that, that's like you watch some yeah, of in- translate that into martial arts. That's where you see some of these guys like uh, – I'm going to cheap plug for uh, John LaTourette here. That guy throws so many shots so fast, it's just not even funny. It's like you blink and he's already hit you 15 times, and every single one of those is a good shot. Right. And that's the thing. That's the danger of that kind of stuff is you get people that get so hung up on the speed that they forget about the power and the accuracy, and that's when they end up, you know, making a fool of themselves because they're like, if I can just do it this fast, everybody will respect me. And the reality of that kind of stuff is the only people that are going to respect that are people that don't understand accuracy and power. Yeah, and John Law Tourette's done some amazing stuff with hitting stuff and actually having power with it at the whole time. It's just, it's crazy. Right. Yeah, and he, that guy's been around forever. Yep. Did he start with Tracy's and then Ed Parker and then I don't know what all happened oh, he's, after he's that. Actually, I'm, I'm trying yeah. to get him on the podcast because he's got a crazy history. He's been in, like, he started actually in Korea in a couple of the, the Korean styles. Oh, right, did, right, right. Some other stuff, but yeah. Uh, I'm trying to get him on the show too, and he keeps dodging me. So hopefully he hears about this, and somebody you know pokes him and says, "Hey, come on the show." <laughs> Let's go, Doc. Get on there. Yep. So anyway, uh, but yeah, back to back to subject. I mean, some of that stuff just just watching pure speed is really impressive when you're not really familiar with it. But if you can go like the wind and hit the guy 27 times in two seconds, and he's still standing there, we got a problem with move one. Right. Well, you know, a lot of people, I just saw something the other day. There was a guy, he, you know, he posted a video, and he's like, look at how cool and fast I am. And unfortunately, he posted it in a forum where there's a bunch of old, crusty tempo guys, and they're like, well, first off, if you hit the guy with that first move, the guy's head's going to turn, so that means you can't hit the next thing, which means you can't hit the third thing, the fourth thing, and the fifth thing. And, you know, the problem with a lot of people, and this kind of goes back to that Budo camp idea I was telling you about, you know, if you're a grandmaster and the only person you've ever trained with is the guy that gave you that rank and you've never been to another seminar, you've never let anybody critically look at your stuff and you just woo yellow belts and orange belts and they think you're awesome, you're going to start clouding your reality with how awesome you might be with how awesome you really are. And when you put it out there for somebody else, you might not get what you're looking for. Um, I appreciate people putting themselves out there and I think people should treat those people with at least a fair hand. Um, the problem in the world today, especially with the internet, I, I, uh, I relate talking to people on the internet, like driving down the freeway, you know how you're driving down the freeway or you're in traffic and there's a guy just digging in his nose. Like he's looking for a hunk of gold. <laughs> he really has got himself to the point where when he's in his car, he's alone and he doesn't realize that everybody can see him. Um, I think people put themselves in those same kind of situations in their life where they're like, I'm the greatest. I've got this. I got a 10th degree black call. I got blah, 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 blah. And then when they realize people are looking through the window, they get pretty embarrassed because they've got their finger three knuckles up their brain and they didn't think anybody was looking. Um, you know, you can be fair to somebody without having to be rude. I mean, sometimes rude is okay, 
but you know the problem is everybody wants to jump on everybody because somehow they get they get social credit by being an asshole. I don't buy it. I mean, you want to tell somebody I think that's crap. There's no reason you can't say that's crap without having to be an asshole about it. I mean, you could just say factually that's wrong. It's crap, and you can say it under the premise that you're saying it so other people watching it that don't know better would have the opportunity to not get lulled in by the siren song of that BS and be able to critically look at it where they wouldn't have been able to because they don't have the knowledge. You deliver the material that way, one, I think it makes you look like a better person, and two, you might actually help the other guy stop being that kind of person. But if you just tell people they suck, nobody listens after that. So, you know, people are free to do what they want, but that's just kind of my theory on the whole thing. Yeah, the whole thing is how do we help each other learn, right? If, if you put something up there and I just say that sucks, okay, thanks for your opinion. Uh, would you like to contribute positively and, and productively, or are you just going to sit here and poo-poo on something without, you know, helping anybody else understand why you think it might be poo-poo and how maybe we could make it better? Seems simple to me. Yeah, the only problem with the Internet is that, you know, there's a – there are a lot of keyboard warriors that like to put stuff down and without actually, you know, helping to understand why or, you know, contributing something that might help change things positively. But, you know, we can't change them either. So You know, the other thing we have to realize is the problem there lies in that the people that are there just to knock somebody down are really no different than the people that are there just to get kudos. This is true. You know, they're both feeding their own ego and they're not accomplishing anything, you know. Your ego should only be fed with things that you've accomplished to make the world better, not with stuff that makes you look better. That's a great life lesson right there. Did you develop that because you've been teaching for so long? I think so. You know, I'm a fan of philosophy. I wouldn't call myself a student, but, you know, I've spent most of my life, I'm not a real big recreational reader. I'm not even a real big recreational viewer. You know, most of the stuff that I watch and take in generally speaking, at least the majority of it, has some kind of learning angle to it. You know, a couple years ago, I got the opportunity to go to a forge and make some knives. You know, and that happened because I was watching a TV show where they make knives. And then I got on the Internet, and I'm like, there's got to be a forge around here somewhere. And then I dumb lucked out, and there was a guy having a class the next weekend. And I got to go down there and pound some steel into, you know, some planters and whatever and forge it. That's the kind of stuff it gets my interest. I like to learn stuff. I like to know things. Um, you know, there's a great shirt that says, I know things and I drink whiskey. Um, I, I kind of try to live by that. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I, I find that a very good thing to do. You know, a lot of people, they like to do other stuff. You know, maybe they like to watch reality shows or music competition shows. I personally, I think, if you're not learning something from it to make you a better person, I don't know what you're doing, man. You're just watching other people succeed in life. What's the goal? Does that make you feel good? I don't know. It's, it's not my thing. And, you know, each to their own. But for me, I would prefer to watch somebody make something and learn something or, you know, talk to a guy like David Crouch and have him say words that I still don't understand <laughs> but still learn something from him somehow. You know, the guy's like talking to, I don't, I don't even know what that guy's like. He's crazy. Um, the amount of knowledge there is nuts. <laughs> Dude, the first time I met him, He's I walked into doc school in 2006, and he introduced me as his, his Kempo Talk screen name, you know, Kempo Kai Kempo Ka. I said, hi, I'm, I wish to learn. 
<laughs> and uh, well, the, the, right after that, he and Doc started into a conversation, lost everybody in the room in sentence three. But I'm just sitting there watching this thing going, Jesus Christ, where did you guys, like, it just, it fascinates me how far and how deep those guys can go with stuff. You know, you, when you find anybody on any subject who is really, really knowledgeable and just watching how far they can go with that topic, it's just great to watch and great to be a part of. And I think the listeners should know, if you want to be that guy someday, all you got to do is keep learning. I mean, let's be honest. Crouch was a guy who was, I mean, I don't know his whole story, but obviously he was a guy that was in the healing arts and he bounced at bars and he did tempo. But eventually what happened is his learning on the healing side, the chiropractic side, the NLP side, all that information and the information he was getting on the, the tempo side, the jujitsu side, the, you know, all that stuff. At one point he just went, duh, this stuff is all related. Mm-hmm. And, if you don't build your knowledge base as you go on every day, you're never going to get there. You're just going to be the guy in the audience going, ooh, ah, wow, those guys are so smart. I wish I was smart. Well, then learn something. You can be smart about something. Everybody's good at something. I mean, maybe, I don't know what you're going to be good at, but all you got to do is spend some time on it, and you'll get some material, and you'll be of value to somebody else. I mean, if you're going to have children... You need to be good at some things so you can teach them some good things. I don't know. It just seems to me. Oh, there you go using that logic thing again, man. Yeah, it hurts a lot of people, but I kind of, I tend to find that the more you use logic, the mess, the less you make a fool of yourself. I don't think I've ever looked at it in that exact uh, phraseology before, but yeah, okay, that makes sense. You know, I, I was telling somebody the other day, I said, you know, it amazes me in, in, interactions and interactions in the virtual world, how fast the ignorant, how, how much of a hurry they are in to make sure that everybody knows they don't know what they're talking about. I almost feel like I want to ask for examples, but I don't want to do that. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's the classic thing, right? A guy comes in and a guy posts something and the next guy comes along and goes, that's nonsense, blah, 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 blah. I mean, you, we could just take the gun issue, right? Why would anybody need an AR-15? Okay, well, let me roll up here and give you 25 reasons why somebody might want one. And then they go, yeah, but no. No, because see, some one kid, you know, 10 kids got shot with an AR-15. Uh, that's not an argument. That's just a fact. All those other things I said are facts, too. And somehow you can't equate one to the other. The difference between you and me is I understand that a bad person took a particular device and did bad things with it. The thing you can't grasp is that there are millions of other people who have taken that same thing and used it for productive purposes. And if you're not willing to do that and all you're going to do is stand here and scream that the sky is falling, you're the fool. Mm -hmm. And you're making a fool out of yourself and you're going on stage in front of people to do it as loudly and belligerently as you possibly can. Good luck. Okay, so we, you know, there's a lot of different people out there that are that are doing the negative sides of things in life for a lot of different reasons. So let's switch gears over to the positive one again. Um, just this past weekend, uh, about a week ago now, as we're recording this, uh, Bob White finally accepted his tenth degree black belt, and that's he was a ninth degree for like 25 years, which is crazy in this world. You know that he, he's, but he's such a humble guy and such a, you know, uh, just a wonderful human being. He's donated. Uh, through his organization, I think he's in, now at like over a million and a half dollars for a Royal Family Kids Camp charity, which is just crazy. 
Amazing. But yeah, uh, you're talking uh, a guy who refused it for 25 years, but he had, I want to say it was like 200 people in the room. They all passed the 10th degree belt around, uh, all had something to say. Uh, The video is going to come out on it here soon from what I understand, but um, he's just an absolute pillar in his community and he's done what he can to help as many people as possible. So I'm going to, I'm going to put you under a spotlight now because I know that there have been people that have walked into your school over out there in Omaha that for whatever reason, you know, either they couldn't afford tuition or they were, you know, had some really nasty circumstances come arise. And we don't, we don't need to necessarily talk about any individual names if, you know, just for confidentiality reasons, but I know you invest a lot of your time into your community and you invest a lot of your time into helping people. So that's where I want to go next in the conversation. So tell us uh, about some of the stuff you've worked with down at your home school there. Yeah. You know, you, you, I try to take people, you know, the set examples like Mr. White did, you know, guys that aren't in it to have the, the rank or the title or whatever, they're in it to actually help people. Um, that's kind of what I, I, I try to run my outfit about, you know, um, you know, and it can be hard running a business and running a charity. You know, I don't really run a charity. I'm not, you know, I haven't raised a million dollars for anybody. That's, that's nuts. Um, good on him. But, you know, I have had people come in and they're like, Hey, I got to quit. I'm like, why do you got to quit? And they're like, I can't pay anymore. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I come up through all the old stories. What can you do? You know, I had a kid once when I was, I don't know, this 20 years ago. That guy's got two kids now, I think. Um, I actually ran across him the other day. He was delivering FedEx to the, the range and he walked in and I'm like, Oh, look at you. He's like, Hey, sensei, how's it going? You know, I really appreciate all you did for me back then. I mean, at one point he was mowing my lawn for, for classes, for tuition. You know, he'd come in, he'd come over once a week and mow my lawn. And then he'd do some stuff at the school and his dad traded out some woodworking for me. You know, my, my idea is if you're willing to put in work, then somebody should give you an opportunity. You know, it can be a sticky wicket sometimes because you can't just trust anybody to do anything. But when you find the right situation and you don't take advantage of it to help somebody else, um, I think you're missing an opportunity for yourself and obviously for everybody else. Um, I've had students come in who, you know, they were referred. I've had people in my school that are like, look, we have a neighbor and they can't afford for their kid to come here, but I think their kid would do really well to learn from you. Can we pay for them? I mean, that kind of stuff, you know, not to make it a big warm my heart kind of story, that's what people do. You know, these people didn't come in. They didn't, you know, they had to tell the other person that somebody was paying for them. But, you know, we didn't make a big deal out of it. We didn't have an event. They just came to class and it was taken care of. You know, I've got other people who clean the school so that they could come to classes. Um, the thing I find hard to, to swallow is when people, they get so down on themselves or they get so down in the world that they couldn't even consider doing something like that. Like, they're like, I want to come here, but I can't pay. And you're like, okay, well, do you want to do this, this, or this? And they're like, oh, no, I'm not doing that. I don't have time for that. That kind of gives you an idea of where you're at. You know, I don't have the time or the wherewithal to be able to pull somebody out of that. All I can do is throw a rope in there. If they want to grab a hold of it and pull themselves out, I'll help them. But if they don't want to grab the rope, there ain't nothing you can do for them. They're just not there. They're not ready. Um, You know, there's other people that do that kind of stuff. And if they're not going to find them, I don't know what I can do with that. I've had a lot of people over the years, and I, I always go out of my way when I'm teaching 
you know, I don't run a really big school, you know, I think at most I'll have 120 people in the school and on, you know, on the low end 75 and I'm not, I'm not eager to have the place chock full of people that are here for the wrong reasons. You know, if they come in and they're here for the wrong reason, my idea is you give them an opportunity to see the light of why they really should be here and maybe they'll learn it. Um, you get the people that come in for the right reasons straight away, then you can just get straight to helping them. Um, but everybody comes in with a different issue. Everybody comes in with a different ability. And one of the things I tell the people when they come in is, you know, we're going to work on your strengths, but we're probably going to work on your weaknesses more. So, you know, when I'm talking to a parent and they come in and their kid's shy, I'm like, your kid's probably going to be up in front of the class more than some of the other kids talking because he needs work on his ability to talk in front of people, speak up, and do these kind of things because it's the kind of thing that's going to help him later on. You know, the parents that put their kids in things that they're only good at, if you set children or adults up with only success, you're doing them a disservice. You know, these places where you go and you only got to show up for four weeks and you automatically get promoted, um, great. Everybody feels good, but has anybody accomplished anything? Was there any growth? I mean, on a regular basis, I have people, you know, at orange belt level and blue belt level that may fail a test two or three times. And usually it's the really motivated ones, right? They're like, Sensei, I want to test. Sensei, I want to test. And I'm like, okay, you can test. And then I go, why did you ask me to test? You obviously don't have any of this down. But what I find is the life lesson there to be able to stand in front of people when you ask for it and say, I deserve to get the next thing. And you go, cool, show me. And they can't. They learn a lesson. They grow as a person. They go, wow, so I actually have to earn it. You know, and on the other side, you've got people who won't ever ask to test. They'll, they'll just be, oh, I don't really care about belts. Well, really what they're saying most of the time is, I'm too afraid to get up in front of people and test and be shown to be a failure. Well, those people need to fail as much as the other people need to fail. They need to fail and realize that a failure is just a temporary thing. You do it today, it didn't work. You do it again tomorrow, maybe it works. And if not, you do it again for another 100 days, and it'll work. But you've got to keep going. Life is nothing but working towards a success. And if you get hung up on the failures and you never get past a failure and you never do that again, it's done. There's nowhere to go. You've got no growth, and if you're not growing, you're dying. Yep, it's the idea that you know pressure builds character too. So if you're you know getting up there and you're failing, and you keep failing, and you keep failing, and you keep failing, it's it's a learning issue that you're not understanding what it is you actually need to do to perform differently. Right, and you know, and you can only get that by hammering on it some more. You know, you just. If you want to polish something, you got to polish it until it's smooth. You don't polish it for a set amount of time. You know, sometimes it might take a minute. Sometimes it might take a thousand minutes. And that's cool. But you got to polish. I love watching that light bulb go on once they get it, though. That's like my favorite part of teaching. Hey, isn't that the best? You know, I, I was just in here the other day, and I've got an adult female student who is um, – who is studying the, uh, the American Chuang Fog track or the American Tactical Tempo track. And I've got an old Marine in here. I mean, he ain't that old, but he's older than most folks. 
And, uh, you know, the, he's not a martial artist, so he just started. I basically do a fit defense class where we come in and we throw sandbags for about a half hour in, you know, calisthenic type stuff. So there's, you know, burpees and sit-ups and all kinds of other crazy stuff. And then we spend the second half of the class learning footwork and blocks and self-defense stuff. And uh, these two adults were in here this week, and she, I think she had her first genuine full-on inward block, kind of like what I talked about. You know, she took her step back, she indexed, she upward indexed, and she, she threw that block, and the other guy jumped back, grabbed his arm, and was like, wow, that was something. And you could see it. I mean, she was genuinely tickled. Like, wow, that is real bona fide. Nobody can take that from me success. I have really, really, really accomplished something. Instead of somebody going, yeah, that's a good job. Here, let me pat you on the back. And everybody goes home and wonders how well they actually did. <laughs> yeah, those, those are my absolute favorite moments in teaching. I have one of my guys who he, he struggled the hardest with uh, actually just even getting to his, his very first level material. And it took him a year to get there. But I remember to this day, still get, I'm, I'm talking about this story and giving me goosebumps again. But I, I, would, I had just finished <laughs> help, helping him with some piece of material and I turned around and took, it was like my third step away from him to go talk to one of my other students. And I froze because I literally felt it in the air that it clicked. And I did one of those like, you know, movie slow turnaround, <laughs> you know, peek over your shoulder, peek over. Okay. Turn around. And by God, he's moving like he needed to be moving. And his progress has been amazing ever since then. But the, those are that's what drives me as a, as a teacher to try and help these guys and find those moments for every single student. I agree with you, man. That's, that's, you know, there's a lot of times I'll say something like that in class. I'll be, I'll be teaching something and somebody really gets some growth, you know, doesn't really matter what it is, but there's something about it where, you know, you see something and they actually, you see human growth. They grow, and you're like, oh, I've been known to say stuff like, well, that's our, that, must, that should balance out some of my bad karma points somewhere along the line because I actually did something good today. I actually helped somebody get somewhere they wouldn't have been able to get without my help. And, you know, people go, well, that sounds cocky. You know, if you can't acknowledge when you do a good job, how are you going to acknowledge when you do a bad job? If you can never acknowledge that you did something good, either for yourself or for somebody else, then everything in your life is bad. That's awful. You know, when you actually help somebody, you know, you help a little kid get through a fear. <laughs> I had a girl who was in a fight not too long ago <clears throat> at a school. Now, I know they have rules against that, and there's zero tolerance for violence, but somehow in a locker room, she ended up in a fight with a girl. And the next day, well, that day, actually, we just worked on the initial part of what is a middle school, high school fight. Somebody standing in your face, somebody bumping chest, somebody bumping gums, putting their hands on you, and giving them all of them, the whole class did it. We didn't talk about the fact that she had been in a fight and got smacked around. We just did the deal. So we talked about verbal, you know, 
getting your hands up, setting up a perimeter fence, stepping back, making some space, getting a preparatory position, acknowledging that there's a real threat, seeing when the threat is coming, and then doing something about it. And whether that's a simple front kick or a simple thrust punch or a simple front punch to the solar plexus, you know, a lot of times I see people, they, they don't teach martial arts to the point of where people understand when you're dealing with an unknown contact, there are, there are nonverbal indicators to tell you that you're actually in a fight. And most human beings, especially if they haven't fought before or have, especially if they haven't trained for it, they lock up because some, when somebody is getting ready to fight and they're doing the monkey dance, these people just keep talking to themselves about how I'm not really in a fight. This person doesn't really want to fight. I don't want to fight. I don't want to fight. And they don't realize until they've been hit three times that, oh, wow, we're really going to do this. And I think if you can prepare people, even little kids, to be able to start thinking immediately. And I don't care if that thinking gets them to go get help. I don't care if it gets them to just get out of the situation and flee. And I don't care if it gets them to just physically respond. If you can't get out of that loop initially and recognize that there is a violent threat coming towards you and you're going to have to do something, all is lost. All the technique in the world isn't going to save you because you're just going to be standing there with a stupid look on your face while you're getting whacked. Yeah, you got to get out of the gate before you can do anything. And that's that uh, adrenaline freeze right there. Right. You got to get past that, you know, and, and accept the fact that this is actually happening. You know, you can't, I completely agree with you. That's like the hardest thing to teach uh, for people because, you know, in general, people who take martial arts, especially those. You know, I know your school has, uh, you have standards as to who you're going to accept as a student and you want them there for the right reasons. You know, we covered that earlier. I'm the, I'm the same way. If I've got somebody who's there for the right reasons, the odds are like 99.9999% chance. This is actually somebody who's really a good person in, you know, in life. And teaching people who are good right. people the reality of, you have to accept that the fight is actually happening or you actually have a legitimate threat that you need to handle. You know, good people don't want to deal with that kind of stuff, especially when they're, you know, their first training in martial arts is, is really their first exposure to any kind of, of, you know, violent aspect in their life. You know, you see them freeze. You put them in a technique line, they freeze. You put them in, you know, learning a new, new movement, they'll freeze as soon as you put pressure on them. And having them learn to get over that is such a crucial and critical skill in their development. It's just, you know, you can't overemphasize that one. Bravo. Yeah, I agree. Because, you know, if you don't, if, if you're going to teach people an art of violence or self-protection, whatever it is, and you're not going to get them to where they can unlock that brain and do something, you haven't accomplished anything. Because when it really happens, they're going to be stuck. Um you know, hopefully getting whacked upside the melon or shot at will be enough to break them loose. But if you watch videos of mass shootings or mass fights or whatever or bullying, generally what happens is they curl up in a ball and hope for the best. And if you're curled up on a, in a ball <clears throat> hiding under a table when a guy's pointing a gun at you, that's, you're not going to get the best. That's not going to turn out well. If you turn your back to somebody that wants to punch you, that's an invitation for them to punch you. They're going to beat you because you've already submitted. You cannot submit to somebody that's going to do evil things to you and expect them to all of a sudden become moral and do the right thing. It's not going to happen. 
And when people realize that, they realize the, the, the need for self-defense, the need for self-defense ability. And whatever it is you choose to do that, you at least have to have a self-defense mindset that says, there are bad things out there and bad people out there that would, given the opportunity, do bad things to me. And I need to have something in my deck of cards to allow me to get out of that situation. Yep. And, and then they got to go find out what that is going to work for them. Yep. And that decision that you're going to act, you need to make that decision, you know, prior to actually being in an altercation. You know, unfortunately in our industry, you know, one of the biggest reasons people start training is still that they've been in an altercation and they either froze or they didn't know what to do and they, they got hurt, right? Um, part of that martial training is, and, well, let me rephrase that. Part of that martial training should be that the lessons coming from your teacher need to also include, you need to make up your mind now what it is you are willing to fight for in the future. You know, and if, if you know, running away is your option and that's what you've chosen to do, then you do that to the best of your ability. You know, if you can talk your way out of it, talk your way out of it. But if it comes down to the point where you have to physically defend yourself, you need to have already made that decision that this is the line I'm willing to go to. This is the line I'm willing to, you know, I'm willing to accept prior to me becoming, you know, offensive or, or, you know, physically responding. Cause in that moment is not the decision time to make, because in that moment, your adrenaline is going to be firing. Your thought processes are going to be affected. You're not going to make a solid, strong decision. You need to have that committed mindset prior to that engagement even occurring. And, you know, that that's a, unfortunately, yeah. I think it is neglected in our industry somewhat, but, you know, the more and more people are, are uh, teaching that particular piece, which makes me happy. You know, you gotta, you gotta have a mindset that you're willing to act. Yeah. I, it's a big deal. Cause you know, it goes into both of the, the industries that I work in and e even, you know, other industries, you see people and they want to think that, practicing or getting a basic skill set somehow prepares them. And once they're put under stress, they're going to somehow respond better than they've ever done it before. And the reality of it is in all kinds of research is you are not going to perform as good or better than you did on your best day. You're probably going to be somewhere at a percentage less than that, maybe up to 50%. And if you haven't done certain things over and over again, you're not going to be able to pull a rabbit out of your hat. You know, I've had people in class go, well, you know, you tell them, hey, you're going to have to hit that person in order to put them in that position in order to hit them again. And they're like, well, yeah, if I was doing it for real, I would do that. And I'm like, well, this isn't imaginary. You're just doing it slower and safer. You're not going to make that up when a guy is in your face with a knife or a gun or a threat or a fist or any of that other stuff. If you haven't thought about it beforehand and you don't have a commitment to self-protection and more so a, a commitment to doing violence to protect yourself or somebody else, you're not going to come up with that. Just like you said, that's not something that magically happens. It's, it's not a movie. Yeah. You don't, you don't magically rise to the occasion. Yeah. It's not going to happen. You know, and I get it. Not everybody's going to be a martial artist. Not everybody's going to carry a gun. Not everybody's going to carry pepper spray. But if you spend your life pretending that there is no violence, when we all know you can turn on a TV or an Internet device anywhere, and if you want, you can watch violence all day, real-life violence. You know, you go to other countries, there's people slashing each other with machetes. In this country, you have 
you know, teenage and pre-teenage kids ganging up five against one to beat the holy crap out of some kid, and they're videotaping it, and it's on, it's on the Internet. You know, this kind of violence is everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah, it might exist more in certain spots than it exists in other spots, but it's everywhere, and it could happen to anybody. And if you're just going to play the odds and say, well, it's probably not going to happen to me, you're right. It probably isn't. But if it does, you have a guaranteed fail outcome because you have done no preparation. Yep, completely agree. And that's, you know, if that's the risk you want to take, I, you know, violence makes me uncomfortable. The idea of violence makes me uncomfortable, so I'm going to pretend like it's never going to happen to me. Then I hope to God that it never does because if it does, we know what the outcome is going to be because you won't have a prayer. So what do you think your best advice is going to be for people that are, you know, maybe in a situation where they're uncomfortable about even, you know, looking into starting in martial art. You know, what would, what encouraging advice would you give them for, you know, go look at something? Well, you know, the first thing I would say is know this, you know, it's, it kind of goes back to a thing I used to say to people about going to the gym, right? You'd be like, Hey, you know, I started working out at this gym. It's really nice. You should consider it. And they go, yeah, I really want to start going to the gym but I have to wait until I lose some weight first. Look, man, everybody that's going to the gym started out needing to go to the gym. I understand that it can be, it can be intimidating and you can feel bad about yourself because you feel like you're the only fat out of shape person at the gym. But the reality of it is, is that's why you're supposed to be there. And the only people that are going to look down on you are people that you shouldn't worry about what they think anyway, because they're not very nice people. If you go into a gym of any kind, whether it's a weightlifting gym, a yoga gym, um, a martial arts gym, a jujitsu gym, and you put forth real effort, no matter what your ability is, if you're really there to learn, anybody in the know is going to like you because they appreciate that that effort. I've had people tell me, well, you know, I, I come in, I want to check out your school, but I'm going to work on my flexibility first. I'm like, why? They're like, well, you know, I'm not very flexible and I can't do blah, blah, blah. I said, cool. So what in my class that you have not even watched yet, do you think you're not going to be able to do because of your flexibility issue? And they're like, well, you know, like the flying side kicks and spinning kicks and stuff. I'm like, well, we're not going to do any of that for quite a long time. By the time you get to that point, you will have the flexibility you need to do what you need to do. I'm like, you're, you're just making excuses because you want to show that you want to do it, but you haven't really gotten yourself to the point where you're willing to just commit to doing something. You know, if you're a woman or even a man, get yourself to a self-defense class if this is something that you're worried about. Just take a four-hour class or a two-hour class or a one-hour class. Get in there and touch somebody you don't know. Push somebody around a little bit. Yell at some people. You know, do a little bit of drills. You know, if you're looking to get a firearm, then you need to go talk to an instructor. One of the hardest things for, to get through to people is they're like, well, I want to get a CCW or I want to I get a gun for my house. And I go, okay, cool. Have you taken a class? They're like, no, I, I don't think I'm going to do that. I just want to know which gun to buy. I'm like, it's not a magic wand, dude. If you don't know how to use it and you can't use it proficiently, it isn't going to do anything for you. You know, if you really want to find a good gun for you, 
get yourself somebody that's in the know to help you out. Most instructors, you know, you want to get a private lesson, you might spend 50 bucks for an hour to go get some instruction, you know, and rent a gun and buy some ammo. It's money well spent because generally what happens in my experience is people buy equipment that they think is good for whatever reason, either their Billy Bob friend told them or, you know, Susie told them, or they read it in a magazine or an internet article and they buy, you know, let's just take a, a, a female. They go to the gun shop and they sell them a pink handled, you know, 357 ultra small revolver. And they're like, well, they told me to get this because you don't have to run a slide and it's super easy. And I go, okay, cool. Have you ever pulled the trigger? Well, no. Okay, well, pull the trigger on that empty gun. Wow, this is really hard. Yeah, the trigger on that gun is about 12 pounds to start with. You're 65 years old, and your grip strength isn't very strong, which is why he told you not to get a semi-automatic, but now you've got a gun that you can barely pull the trigger on, and it doesn't have a hammer, so you can't pre-cock it. Now let's go out on the range and let's shoot some 357 Magnum out of that thing that weighs, you know, four ounces. And they get three bullets out of it, and they're like, oh, my God, this is horrible. It hurts. I can't hit anything. This is really, really bad. And you're talking about somebody that has now got 650 bucks wrapped up in a gun that they don't want. And they don't want it so bad, they're like, will you just buy this for me so I can buy a different gun? Mm-hmm. And instead of spending 50 bucks or 200 bucks to get some training, they've spent 1000 bucks on gear that they don't want that they don't need, and they get to start over. Martial arts is the same way. Go in. Take a free class. You know, if you have concerns, if you're shy, if, if you have problems touching people or people touching you, talk to the instructor and go, hey, it's going to take me a little while to get used to this. Is this okay? Is this the kind of place that I, I'll fit in? Talk to them. If they're a good instructor and they want to help you, they're going to help you. If they're just some guy running a, you know, a big old fight club where everybody's walking around on their egos, punching each other in the face, then you'll know, and it won't be the place for you. Mm-hmm. But there's a place for everybody when it comes to self-defense. And if you want to do it, the first thing you got to do is take a step forward, start looking around and find some place that you feel fairly comfortable with that you can look at the advanced people and go, wow, that's the skill set that I'd like to set a goal to be able to do. If you go to a school and there's two fifth-degree black belts, and they're sparring, and they're not touching each other, they're not taking each other down, they're not hitting each other with blocks, then you need to question yourself and go, is that a skill set that I want to have? Is that where I want to end up? And that'll give you a really good idea of what you're looking at. Even if you don't know, look at what they're, they've accomplished and ask yourself, is that something that I want to have accomplished as well? Do I want to spend four years learning that or two years or whatever it is? Because if you're not going to be proud of what they're doing, then what are you doing? Well said. And then on top of that, I'm going to add one other piece is, you know, if you like what the, what the students are doing, make sure you spend some time talking with the instructors because the instructor is the person who's going to be your, your, your guide to making sure you can learn to do that. And if you can't click with the instructor, you're going to have an uphill battle from day one. So you know, make sure you can get on the same page with the instructor. Yeah, I would agree with that. And the other thing I would say is to be careful when you're talking to the instructor. I mean, sometimes it's going to be pretty obvious. You're going to go in and go, wow, this does not jive with, with my feelings and things. This guy is not for me. 
But on the other hand, you know, if you're just a little uncomfortable, make sure you, you measure that against how much of that is you versus how much of that is the instructor. Mm-hmm. Because you're not going to be able to build a relationship with an instructor, and you're not going to know what it's going to turn out for a while. I mean, for an example, I had a guy come in. He was a uh, – he had done, accomplished a lot in his life. He's an older guy. You know, when I say older, I mean over 40. And um, he came in pretty fit. You know, he was working out at the gym. He had been, you know, he had been in the fire department. I think he was a captain of the fire department. He was a medic in the, in the military, and he supported special forces guys back in the day. And he was an officer in the military and the guard. And, and he, he had accomplished tons of things. You know, he was a competitive bike shower guy. You know, you go to bike shows and show your bike. I mean, he was just one of those guys that kept taking things on and accomplishing things. So he came in and said, well, I think I want to take classes from you. And I'm like, okay, well, you, you don't look like the kind of guy that's afraid of people. You don't look like the kind of guy that has a big hole that he's still in need. Why are you here? And he just said, well, I just want to train. So we started training. And in the beginning, he was a difficult personality. You know, he, he was the kind of person where if he didn't understand something initially, he, instead of saying something like, oh, I don't understand, he'd be like, I don't think that works. You know, he was just one of those people that was hard. For the first six months, I mean, I even had other students coming up to me going, hey, what, what's wrong with this guy? Why is he so belligerent all the time? Why is he, why is he so hard to get along with? And at one point, I, I got to the point where I'm like, I might have to just release this guy from his membership because he's, he's just very difficult. People are having problems with him and speaking to him and training him, you know, because when you take somebody that has been at the top of their game in a bunch of other things and then have them come in and you've got, I mean, in class, I had a 16-year-old black belt. She'd been training since she was like five. So she had a lot of experience, and she was good. She is good. And, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll look at people and go, well, let's see how they do if I put them in a situation. So I had her teach him a technique. And you could tell that the idea of a kid telling him what to do was a little hard to swallow. And they really had some friction for a while. But eventually, you know, once I figured him out and I started to, to get some vibes from him, because um, I found him, I found him difficult as well. Once I crossed a bridge, I found what it was. I, I don't even know that I know exactly what it was, but I found a way past it. And since then, he's become a black belt of mine and one of the best students I've ever had, and he's universally liked by everybody. But it was kind of like bringing the new kid in and he acts the wrong way, right? His social, his social graces were, were fitted for a different kind of... Um, social group, you know, you're hanging out with military guys, you're hanging out with motorcycle guys, you're hanging out with firemen. That social structure is a little bit different than an all-ages martial arts school. But once, you know, once he started hanging out after class and talking to me, we became friends, and, you know, he'd go, well, this, the way that this was presented to me was offensive, and I didn't like it. And I'm like, cool, well, your reaction was offensive to everybody else and nobody liked that. And I'd be like, you know, if you would have took it this way or if they would have said it this way, then what? 
And then we got to a point where we started to understand each other, and he's become a valuable asset to my team and my lineage. And, you know, you, can't, you have to be careful of making a snap, snap judgment about a personality the first time out. Now, that being said, sometimes you're going to be able, you're probably better off just listening to your gut. And I know that doesn't give anybody a definite answer of what to do, but what I'm saying is, you know, maybe you should marinate on it, meditate on it, think about it a little bit. Maybe go back a second time, maybe a third time. Maybe talk to some of the other students and see what they think. Maybe take a private lesson from the guy. You know, you're going to find that sometimes you can't judge a book by its cover. Other times you can. I mean, you know, if the book says this book sucks, yeah, it probably sucks. Fair enough. All right, well, that was, uh, I think, right around... 80 minutes or so of uh, time we've just been spending talking. So that was a lot of fun. I don't get to talk to you as much as I'd like to these days, but uh, still a great conversation nonetheless. Thank you, sir. Glad we can have you on the show today. Yeah, my thanks to you. So uh, we now have uh, been in over 24 countries worldwide. We've got, uh, I forgot exactly how many on the downloads it is, but it's several uh, several thousand listeners every week that when these episodes get published, it's over 10,000. So uh, worldwide audience, sir, welcome to the show. And uh, what message would you like them to all hear from you regarding martial arts or training or life in general? Well, you know, I think the thing I would tell people is do something to make yourself better, preferably every day. And, you know, that could be as simple as changing a thought process. It could be simple as changing the way you treat somebody or the way you treat yourself. But train every day. And whether that's just a little mental training or some physical training or exercise or learning a new skill or taking a class or, you know, anything that you can do that makes you a little bit better makes everybody else's world a better place. So let's work on self-improvement, do some training, and be nice to each other. Well said, sir. Okay. Uh, And then this is the plug your stuff moment. So... Uh, if people want to get a hold of you for, you know, martial arts training or for firearms training or for Budo camp, you know, uh, how do you want people to get a hold of you? Well, you know, the easiest way to get a hold of me is probably through uh, the Steiner Academy of Martial Arts Facebook page. Um, I also have SteinerAMA.com, which is the Steiner Academy of Martial Arts website. Um, you can give me at Steiner at SteinerAMA.com. Uh, my phone numbers are available on the Internet. Um, as far as the firearms training goes, you know, that's basically, it, it is Steiner Academy of Firearms Training. You can reach me there. You can also reach me through Interten's uh, Weapons and Training. They both have Facebook pages and websites. We have Twitter for both of those. Um, Budo Camp Online has its own website. That will be coming up in September. I would love to see new people coming in. If people have a concern or a question about that, feel free to email me. And then we can start a discussion on whether that's a good fit for you. And let me just tell you, it's a good fit for you. You'll enjoy yourself, and we would enjoy having you. We had people from Arizona and Boston last year. We've had people come in from Mexico City in the past. I've had people come from Spain. Um, it's a big deal, and we have a great time. Uh, the Ballistic Betty's program that I run in conjunction with the uh, Steiner Academy of Firearms Training is a women's firearms group where we work on self-defense techniques, um, classes once in a while, and then we work on firearms classes about once a month. We've got it down to about once a month, once every other month, so people don't have to make a huge time commitment, but they can do a little bit of training to get themselves more proficient and more productive at being, you know, able to defend themselves 
and their children and their families. And, um, you know, with the websites and the Facebook pages, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. You know, I'm always happy to do seminars if people are interested in any of the information that I have. I like to share. So if anybody's interested in having that, um, just contact me and we can get something set up for you. I do private instruction in both, both paradigms of uh, martial arts and firearms instruction. And if, you know, if there's something I can help you with, feel free to give me a contact and uh, I'll see what I can do to help you out. Right on. Uh, been my pleasure having you on the show, sir. I'm glad we can make this happen. That was my pleasure. You know, I, I always like to be a part of something. I try to surround myself with people that are better at stuff than I am. So, you know, being in, in with the likes of, you know, Dr. Todd, Dr. Chappelle, and, you know, Bob White, and these guys that you've interviewed before, um, I'm honored. I'm honored to be a part of it, and I strive to make sure that I'm worthy of the honor. Well, I'm also happy I also just get to call you a friend, too. So, brother in the arts and friend. That's how we, yeah, that's how we do things. That's how we do things, and, you know, I know you're from California, but you're still a pretty cool guy. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of near the coast, but I'm not on the coast. There's a difference. <laughs> right, right, right. All right, sir. I'm going to go ahead and sign it off for the day. And uh, it was a pleasure talking to you for us. My pleasure, sir. Thank you very much. All right. One more great chat here on the Artist of Motion podcast. I had a great time talking with Sean. I haven't actually got to hang out and talk with him for a little while here. So it was good catching up and getting to know more about his background. So I hope everybody enjoyed it out there in podcast land. Find us again, artistofmotion.com, artistofmotion.com slash iTunes if you want to go ahead and hook up on Apple Podcasts. If you have an Android device, you can find us at artistofmotion.com slash Google Play. That's all one word. Hopefully when you're out there, leave us a review or comments. You can find us on podbean.com. And, and uh, you know, all of the feedback is great because it helps us make this show better. If you have a guest that you'd like to see, email us, pod at artistofmotion.com. If there's an episode you want to hear more from, from somebody who was already on the show, shoot me an email and let me know. You can find us on Facebook, and real soon we're going to be on Spotify, so this should be interesting. Alrighty, that's all for this week's episode. Stay tuned next week for another guest, and we're not sure who's going to be yet, so we'll see what happens. I'm Steve Zelazowski. Catch you next time.